Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is... This week is... Migration. This is in the Daily Mail. Theresa May claims traffickers are using Facebook to advertise travel agent style services encouraging thousands of African migrants to cross the Mediterranean to get to Europe. Facebook is hosting adverts encouraging migrants to make the journey across the Mediterranean to Europe, Theresa May told EU leaders last night. The adverts show different prices and routes while one even offers a discount for children. They make no mention of the perils of the journey which claims hundreds of lives each year. Instead, they suggest that the crossing will be made on well-fitted out ships or even luxury yachts. The Prime Minister briefed leaders in Salzburg on British operations which have identified more than 500 adverts posted by people smugglers on the social media platform in the last year. British sources said human traffickers were using Facebook to advertise travel agent style services. In reality, thousands have died in recent years while trying to make the crossing on overcrowded, badly maintained boats which often lack the most basic safety equipment. Some boats even sail sail without enough fuel, with those on board relying on being rescued. A British source said these adverts are presented as reshoring and create an illusion this is safe, normal travel, rather than the reality of being packed onto a rigid inflatable or a small boat without safety jackets. British authorities identified a total of 539 online people smuggling adverts last year. Officials worked with Europol's internet referral unit and the social media firms to get the adverts blocked. But Mrs May last night told EU leaders that European governments needed to take a coordinated stand to persuade social media firms to take the issue seriously and to prevent adverts blocked in one country simply popping up in another. She warned that Europe was only as strong as its weakest link. Facebook said last month that it had doubled the size of its safety and security team and was investing in technology to help it crack down. People smuggling is illegal and any ads, posts, pages or groups that coordinate its activity are not allowed on Facebook, a spokesman said. British sources said that although Facebook and other firms usually responded to requests to take down adverts for people smuggling, they were not yet being proactive. Although word of mouth remains the main method for advertising the illegal operations, online advertising is playing an increasing role. If we can find them easily, then obviously social media companies, including Facebook, can find them just as easily, one source said. There's a lot more that social media companies can do. The article goes on. The number of migrants crossing has fallen sharply this year, but tens of thousands are still attempting it. In the first seven months of this year, almost 75,000 people made it to Europe, with another 1,524 reported dead or missing, according to the International Organization for Migration. The Prime Minister told EU leaders that Europe faced a generational challenge in dealing with mass migration and that the UK would remain fully committed to helping tackle the issue after Brexit. Well, it's the UK and America's endless invasions of countries in the Middle and Near East and North Africa that has caused much of this migration. Invasions on a lie or a manufactured by the West civil war, started by the proxy armies of the West, to provide the excuse to invade those countries on the pretext that the leaders are killing their own people. It's May, Cameron, Brown and Blair's actions that have caused the problem in the first place to a large extent. I've talked about migration in episodes 12, 21 and 23 and why it's an elite sponsored operation. In episode 12, I talk about how NGOs, non-governmental organisations, which present themselves as charities are fueling immigration on one level. It's no surprise corporations like Facebook are playing their part because, as I said with the previous article, these giant corporations' main concern is the elite's agenda, not people. 
We're seeing these Silicon Valley giants through computer algorithms, which are basically codes that you input, and then the algorithm runs on its own according to the input. So there's a certain level of intelligence there on behalf of the algorithm. That's what would be called low-level AI, as opposed to the fully self-aware AI of the transhuman agenda, which I talk about in episode 11. But through these algorithms, these Silicon Valley giants are effectively listening to conversations and targeting advertising based on those conversations, whether typed or spoken. YouTube is doing the same with videos. Now, you take that potential for listening to conversations beyond advertising, and you can see the effect these Silicon Valley giants have for promoting information to give people a certain perception. Also, simultaneously, you've got this war on information of these Silicon Valley giants. Google and Facebook are using algorithms to suppress web pages, websites, and information they don't want people to see. Algorithms that list web pages and websites much further down in the search results because a lot of people only look at the first page or the first few results when they search anything on Google. And algorithms that stop people seeing a post on Facebook if it contains certain keywords of information. So you actually can post it, but the algorithms make sure that only a few people see it in comparison to everyone on your friends list that is on Facebook at the time or even afterwards that could see it. YouTube is demonetizing videos of people who depend on that income to continue making content, communicating alternative information and work full time on the research and video making. They're also just outright deleting channels. Silicon Valley now has the greatest concentration of surveillance and censorship power the world has ever seen. You've got all this unproven, no evidence nonsense about Russia hacking elections and yet through Silicon Valley in California, through this process I've just described, you've got far more potential to influence elections than Russia has been accused of having, and on a far more incessant basis. But because they're doing the bidding of the elite's agenda, they're left alone. Russia, with no evidence presented, is accused of hacking elections and condemned because it suits the elite's agenda for them to be demonized. Whatever suits the elite's agenda at any point is what the public are told because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The next subject this week is social media. This is in the Telegraph. Three children in every classroom suffer a mental health problem fueled by social media, Bernardo's chief warns. Three children in every classroom are suffering mental health problems fueled by social media, the chief executive of the UK's biggest children's charity has said. Javed Khan, Bernardo's chief executive, said children's services are struggling to cope with a crisis made worse by the internet and social media, which is exposing children to cyberbullying, sexual exploitation, grooming, and gaming addiction. Mr. Khan told The Telegraph social media was contributing to a perfect storm of rising demand for children's services, which have increasingly limited resources to cope with it. A YouGov poll for the charity yesterday found 60% of social workers, education and law enforcement staff have seen an increase in the number of particularly vulnerable children in the past five years. Two-thirds attributed the rising numbers to a shortfall in early interventionists and more children than ever had complex problems, including trauma, grooming, sexual abuse and exploitation. Citing an Office of National Statistics study of some thousand children, Mr. Khan warned it had become a wider issue affecting children of all classes and backgrounds. Three children in every classroom were thought to have a diagnosable mental health problem, which is approaching epidemic proportions, he said. The nature of vulnerability is changing, and it doesn't respect class or privilege. Across the country, there are children living in comfortable homes with their parents who seem safe and secure, but the moment they switch on their phone, tablet or computer, they enter a new realm where the usual rules, regulations and safeguards do not apply. He added that the risks connected with the online world, in addition to rising demand for children's services and limited resources, creating a perfect storm. 
with 77% of those polled saying there were insufficient resources to meet demand, Mr Khan advocated a radical new approach which included Bernardo's delivering services for and in partnership with councils, police, the NHS and other charities. Mr Khan also backed urgent legislation to force the tech giants to take faster and more effective action to better protect children from online harms. We know through our specialist services how abusers destroy children's lives and much more needs to be done to protect them, he said. Any delay could put future generations of children in danger, he said. The Telegraph has been campaigning for a new statutory duty of care on social media firms to better protect children from threats such as cyberbullying, grooming and addiction. Well, young people and kids are being hit on so many levels. Social media is one level of it, not only in the ways explained in this article, but through peer pressure and the pressure to self-censor what you say and what you express through social media because your friends are on it. You can block certain people from seeing certain posts, but what this does and what social media in general does, especially with kids nowadays who grow up in this environment, is it teaches them to identify with their online persona, believing that the online persona matters more than their real persona. There was an episode of Black Mirror called Nosedive where everyone is rated by their online interactions. And this, of course, in our world, even now, never mind in the future, goes beyond just likes and comments. It goes into the world of employment where employers or some employers look on the social media accounts of people they've interviewed or even employees and this gets many people to self-censor again people are told in certain jobs that they can't say this or that i know of one example myself who told me they've been told in their work they can't say this or that or they have to instead say this we're seeing this war on alternative information thought and opinion and it's not just about what the public are allowed to express but ultimately, what the public are allowed to know. And that's what the censorship's all about in the end, in its various forms, not least through social media, as I've said many times before. And kids are nowadays growing up in this environment. And when you grow up in an environment, you don't tend to question it. It's just how it is. And so self-censorship in this world becomes even more prevalent than it already was even before social media. Of course, people have always had it their true self and then the self they present to the world. But with social media and the way I've described it, it's taken on to another level. The sales pitch for social media is that it brings people together, but because of what I've just described and for other reasons too, it's actually anti-social media because it drives people apart in many ways. You've also got the potential for conflict, not least through Twitter, with the Twitter stormers and the Twitterati as they're called, and idiots arguing with idiots and intelligent people being poured into arguments with idiots. Someone said to me the other day, they were debating, with the word debating in inverted commas, with someone on an alternative media forum. And this person was just dismissing everything they said. And I said to the person who told me this, why are you wasting your time posting comments on blogs and forums with people like that who either clearly don't want to know, or who could very well be a paid disinformer because from the comments I was shown, by this person. It looks very much like the kind of comments I've seen many times before from such people, so why bother? I don't bother with forums and blogs myself. I'd rather do my own research. There's some great research presented through forums and they can be a great way to circulate information and help others with their research, but there's also people who, not just on forums, but social media and sites like YouTube and other websites who are paid by the intelligence network, etc., to try to discredit anything authority doesn't want people to believe, and also to try to discredit people spreading that information. Discredit the messenger, discredit the message, or at least that's the perception intended anyway. You can be this or that as a person, but if what you're saying is true, it's true. 
But the idea with these disinformers or paid trolls, as they're also called, because there's some trolls who are not paid but are just stirring up arguments, but the idea of the paid trolls or disinformers is to persuade people that a researcher is this or that to discredit what they're saying. I don't deal with forums. It's just not for me. I do my own research on my own time. Actually, on that point, I saw this book the other day. It was Carol Vorderman's Help Your Kids With Study Skills book. And I looked through it out of interest, given what I do myself. And it was about how to study for exams. But I was looking at it thinking, I don't study or research like this. I study on my terms in my time. I don't have a study method or a research method. And yet, I've come across the information I have over the last 10 years. Because you don't have to be academically minded or researching the way you were for a school exam to uncover this information. I've done it my own way for the last 10 years and uncovered a mass of information across a whole spectrum of subjects presenting the world in a very different way to the mainstream narrative. It was quite amusing flicking through this book, I have to say. You don't need an academic mind to uncover this information or to become more aware of it, you just need an open one. Not an open one that says, I'll believe anything, but an open one that says, okay, I'm going to look beyond what I'm told by the mainstream media and education, and I'm going to give alternative information a chance, and I'll see if it stands up. And if it does, then I'll encompass that. Because just believing what the mainstream says, because it's the mainstream, is what has got us into the mess we're in, in this world and in society. So an open mind that will give information a chance and see if it stands up is what's going to get us out of it. Another level to this pressure on kids is through school. Schools are becoming more and more like prisons. I know of one example myself where in one secondary school, kids are being lined up to take their fingerprints. Biometrics, which is a level beyond fingerprinting as it's done on computer. There was biometrics in the library when I was in secondary school and that's going back a few years now. I'm 27 now but these kids are having their fingerprints taken biometrically just so they can buy food in the canteen. And of course it's about getting kids to accept that this is just how it is and getting kids prepared for a lifetime of surveillance and authoritarianism as just how it is so they don't question it. I know of one example where someone's kid was crying because they fear the consequences of not being able to complete their homework. This is what it's about. Get kids to fear authority in a prison called school and then they'll fear authority in the prison called human society for the rest of their life. There's also kids under pressure from family to do well in school and pass exams, as if that's the only way you can make a life for yourself. Far from it, but some parents put kids through this pressure to succeed, and it's all succeeding on authorities and the establishment's terms, on the system's terms, rather than what the kid considers success and the kind of life they want to live and teaching kids not to let an exam grade define them, let them define themselves. You've got now three children in every classroom suffering mental health problems according to this article from social media, but then you add on top of that all the other sources of pressure for kids, as I'm describing, and you have to ask the question when you look at all of that, what are we doing to children and young people? Why are we putting them through this pressure when they should be enjoying life and having the time of their life before the pressure is supposed to start of adult life and what comes with that. There is a war on children and young people because they are the generation designed to grow up in the world of the elite's agenda, more so even than now. We've got kids in school being diagnosed with childhood behavioural problems like ADHD, overdiagnosed in truth. I'll talk about that more in episode 33. 
Just being a kid nowadays is more and more leading to a diagnosis. And I'll explain why that is in episode 33. The next subject this week is technology and crime. This is in the Daily Mail. Core to regulate police use of minority report style crime prediction software. New rules should be brought in to control how police use minority report style software to predict which criminals will reoffend, a think tank has said. A report published by the Royal United Services Institute called for clear guidelines on so-called predictive policing and the police watchdog to make sure that forces comply. Durham was the first force to start using a computer program to help decide how likely criminals were to reoffend, but the report says several other forces are looking at similar technology. Durham is a place in Britain for those listening in other parts of the world. Sci-fi blockbuster Minority Report, set in 2054, features detectives who use a psychic to predict who will commit murders and then arrest them before the crime happens. Real-life software that predicts where crimes might take place is already shown in some tests to be twice as accurate as traditional policing methods that authors suggest, but the use of computer software to predict how likely criminals are to reoffend is still in its infancy. The report says while machine learning algorithms are currently being used for limited policing purposes, there is potential for the technology to do much more and the lack of a regulatory and governance framework for its use is concerning. A new regulatory framework is needed, one which establishes minimum standards around issues such as transparency and intelligibility, the potential effects of the incorporation of an algorithm into a decision-making process and relevant ethical issues, a formalised system of scrutiny and oversight including an inspection role for Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services is necessary to ensure adherence to this new framework. The article goes on. It recommends small localised trials of software along with clear guidance and codes of practice outlining appropriate constraints governing how police forces should trial predictive algorithmic tools. The authors continue. This should be addressed as a matter of urgency to enable police forces to trial new technologies in accordance with data protection legislation, respect for human rights and administrative law principles. Well, I agree there should be measures in place to ensure the technology is used in a fair, ethical and balanced way, but that's not the idea. We shouldn't fall for the trap of believing they don't want us to know about surveillance. They do, because many people, when they know they're being surveilled, will edit their behaviour. So people revealing the scale of surveillance by authority and intelligence agencies, believing they don't want us to know that, they do want us to know. Because they know that if people know, many of them will edit and censor their behaviour as a result. Another part of this is the fact that because of the increased surveillance, because of pre-crime systems, and because of the obvious limitations of AI making these decisions, people will be intimidated into staying in line and not causing a problem for authority. This replacement of jobs by AI again goes back to the theme of the AI takeover as judges and police assessing if someone's going to reoffend or not are replaced by AI. It's madness to leave such an important decision to an algorithm but that's where we're going and in the end it will be a fully self-aware consciousness AI making such decisions. New Jersey in America reformed their bell system and replaced it with an algorithm which makes decisions on whether or not to release a criminal based on whether the algorithm AI thinks the person will reoffend or not. Once again, madness. What if the AI makes the wrong decision and a person commits the same crime again? It has to be assessed by a human. Here's an article in The Guardian from October 2016. Artificial intelligence judge developed by UCL computer scientists. Artificial intelligence software that can find patterns in highly complex decisions is being used to predict our taste in films, TV shows and music with ever-increasing accuracy. And now, after a breakthrough study by a group of British scientists, it could be used to predict the outcome of trials. 
Software that is able to weigh up legal evidence and moral questions of right and wrong has been devised by computer scientists at University College London and used to accurately predict the result in hundreds of real-life cases. The AI judge has reached the same verdicts as judges at the European Court of Human Rights in almost four or five cases involving torture, degrading treatment and privacy. The algorithm examined English language data sets for 584 cases relating to torture and degrading treatment, fair trials and privacy. In each case, the software analysed the information and made its own judicial decision. In 79% of those assessed, the AI verdict was the same as the one delivered by the court, but only 79%. So, there's 11% of the time when humans would have made a different decision. Dr. Nikolaus Elektros, the lead researcher from UCL's Department of Computer Science, said, We don't see AI replacing judges or lawyers, but we think they'd find it useful for rapidly identifying patterns and cases that lead to certain outcomes. Well, it's designed to replace judges and lawyers. The quote goes on. It could also be a valuable tool for highlighting which cases are most likely to be violations of the European Convention on Human Rights. The article goes on. An equal number of violation and non-violation cases were chosen for the study. In the course of developing the program, the team found that judgments of the European Court of Human Rights depends more on non-legal facts than purely legal arguments. This suggests that the court's judges are more legal theory realists than formalists. The same is true of other high-level courts such as the US Supreme Court according to previous studies. The most reliable factors for predicting European Court of Human Rights decisions were found to be the language used as well as the topics and circumstances mentioned in the case texts. In other words, there's more of a chance of using common sense and judging situations on their merit, which machines and AI is less likely to do. The study's co-author, Dr. Dimitrios Sarapatsanis, a law lecturer from Sheffield University where Electris completed its doctorate, said the study was the first of its kind. It corroborated the findings of other research on the factors that influenced the judgments of high-level courts, he said. It should be further pursued and refined through the systematic examination of more data. Dr. Vasileos Lampos, a UCL computer scientist, added previous studies and predicted outcomes based on the nature of the crime or the policy position of each judge. So this is the first time judgments have been predicted using analysis and text prepared by the court. We expect this sort of tool would improve efficiencies of high-level, in-demand courts, but to become a reality, we need to test it against more articles and the case data submitted to the court. The article goes on. Lawyers are increasingly making use of software that can perform complex tasks, such as searching for concepts rather than simple keywords, which can greatly reduce the amount of time needed to determine what documents might be relevant to a case, for example. For the time being, however, Judge Judy, or Judge Rinder for that matter, may not need to think about retraining just yet. The findings by Electris and his colleagues were published in the journal Peer J Computer Science. It's crazy to leave such decisions to technology and algorithms. It has to be done by humans. Here's another article from The Express from July 2017. AI police state China to use technology to predict crimes before they happen. China is in many ways the microcosm and the macrocosm in terms of the world of the elite's agenda. This is the article. Much like in the 2002 film Minority Report starring Tom Cruise, authorities in the East Asian country want to catch criminals before they've done any wrongdoing. The police and the surveillance state have enlisted the help of AI to determine who is going to commit a crime before it happened. Li Meng, Vice Minister of Science, said, If we use our smart systems and smart facilities well, we can know beforehand who might be a terrorist who might do something bad. One of the ways China is hoping to peek into the future is with facial recognition firm CloudWalk which is trialing software that gathers data on where people are and what they're doing. For example, if a citizen is to visit a weapons shop, then the firm can combine this with other data to assess the individual's chance of committing a crime. Clyde Walk spokesperson Fu 
Zhao Long told the Financial Times, the police are using a big data rating system to rate highly suspicious groups of people based on where they go and what they do. He added that the risk rises if the person frequently visits transport hubs and goes to suspicious places like a knife store. Another way that the police can use AI to predict crimes is through algorithms that use crowd analysis to detect suspicious patterns of individuals to determine if they are a thief, for example. It can also be used to monitor high-risk locations such as knife and hammer shops. Mr. Fu added, of course, if someone buys a kitchen knife, that's okay, but if the person also buys a sack and a hammer later, that person is becoming suspicious. Authorities are also set to use personal re-identification software to match someone's identification even if they are in an entirely new location and attempting to disguise themselves. Leng Biao, Professor of Bodily Recognition at Beijing University of Aeronautics and Astronautics said, we can use re-ID to find people who look suspicious by walking back and forth in the same area or who are wearing masks. With re-ID it's also possible to reassemble someone's trail across a large area. So where does all this pre-crime technology end up? Well. Richard Atkinson, a member of the Law Society's Criminal Law Committee, said, This is a very dangerous step. By law, custody decisions must be made by human beings, taking complex circumstances into account. But in reality, custody sergeants will delegate responsibility to the algorithm. They will undoubtedly face questions from higher up if they choose to go against it. How will suspect solicitors be able to challenge the algorithm if they're only given a lot of data and told this means their client is high risk? It's a serious issue that something that's quasi-scientific is given undue weight and effectively becomes gospel. And where does this end up? Do we have algorithms making decisions in court? Well, yes, it does end there. And that means that we have AI taking over another area of society because the agenda is to change this world into a technological, massively irradiated, synthetic AI-run world. The next subject this week is... Amazon, this is in the Daily Mail. Amazon planning to launch up to 3,000 cashier-less stores by 2021. A study reveals the firm is now third in online ads behind Google and Facebook. Amazon is said to be considering opening 3,000 of its cashier-less stores by 2021. The tech giant already has four locations of its Go stores up and running, but it may have up to 10 locations open by the end of the year, with as many as 50 by 2019, Bloomberg reported, citing sources close to the situation. It would mark the latest example of Amazon's rapidly growing e-commerce, cloud computing and now advertising empires as the firm's online advertising business gets closer to overshadowing the likes of Google and Facebook. Amazon opened its first cashierless store in Seattle two years ago and has launched two additional locations in Seattle and another in Chicago. The firm's main challenge to opening more stores is the high cost of the technology used to power the cashierless design as well as other hardware. Its first location in downtown Seattle cost over $1 million in hardware according to Bloomberg. Amazon could reduce the cost of hardware and increase profit margins by focusing on selling prepared foods instead of offering an expanded section of grocery items. CEO Jeff Bezos has weighed whether the stores should offer prepared foods and limited grocery items akin to a 7-Eleven store or if they should offer prepared sandwiches, soups and other items like a Pret-a-Manger. By rolling out 3,000 Amazon Go stores, Amazon will quickly become one of the biggest chains in the US, Bloomberg said. The firm is mostly eyeing urban areas with wealthy young residents who can afford to pay for items that are a little higher priced but ensure better quality than fast food. It would put the stores in competition with businesses like Subway, Panera and Pret-a-Manger as well as other places that offer quick bites and takeout items. Opening more locations in the same city would also allow Amazon to cut down on costs since they could take advantage of a centralised food production facility. So far, Amazon has declined to comment on reports about opening additional go stores, so we don't comment on rumours or speculation, an Amazon spokesperson told CNBC. The move comes as another 
corner of Amazon's vast empire is set to expand. Research firm eMarketer predicts that Amazon will control more than 4% of the US digital advertising market by the end of this year. This amounts to about $4.61 billion in revenue, which is a huge jump from the firm's previously predicted sales of $2.89 billion. That's a far cry from Google and Facebook, which have long maintained a digital ad duopoly, though Amazon is still expected to come in third. Google is set to claim 37% of the market, while Facebook will corner 20.5% of the US digital ad market. The surge in Amazon's advertising business is due in part to more people searching from the e-commerce site directly instead of going through Google's search engine. What's more, Amazon has grown its advertising business 242% since 2017, e-marketers said. How do Amazon's Go stores work? In December 2016, Amazon unveiled a convenience store in downtown Seattle. They replaced cashiers with technology found in self-driving cars. It opened to the public in January 2018. To start shopping, customers must scan an Amazon Go smartphone app and pass through a gated turnstile. Ready to eat lunch items greet shoppers when they enter. Deeper into the store, shoppers can find a small selection of grocery items including meats and milk kits. An Amazon employee checks IDs in the store. It's wine and beer selection. Sleek black cameras monitoring from above and weight sensors in the shelves help Amazon determine exactly what people take. If someone passes back through the gates with an item, his or her associated account is charged. If a shopper puts an item back on the shelf, Amazon removes it from his or her virtual cart. Much of the store will feel familiar to shoppers aside from the checkout process. Amazon, famous for dynamic pricing online, has printed price tags just as traditional bricks and mortar stores do. This is the monopoly again that corporations like Amazon are seeking. It's not by accident that these elites serving agenda advancing corporations get a monopoly relatively easily is because they're there to introduce and advance the elite's agenda. So to do that, they need access to a wide audience. Also, if you want a world of corporations, which is the agenda, as I've said before, then you want to make sure only those organizations that serve your agenda become those corporations. This is one reason why the agenda is to get rid of business of all sizes and just have corporations corporations that introduce and advance the elite's agenda. These cashier-less Amazon stores are obviously another step towards the cashless society. The steps towards the cashless society go back a long time because the elite's agenda is long, long planned. Even before the credit card, this would have been planned. The credit card coming in was not when the elite had the idea, it was just the beginning of the steps towards the cashless society. Then came online payment, so you don't even need anything physical now, and you don't even need to be in a store. Then came contactless payment, so you only need to touch the payment machine now with the card. You don't need to put the card in the machine and enter your PIN. Then came smartphone payment, so now there's no card, you just touch the machine with your smartphone, just as with contactless. And the point is, before any of these stages were introduced into society, the end a cashless society was already planned. These different stages were just a means of bringing it into society. Because to go from cash only to no cash in a purely electronic currency in one go is too much of a jump, so you need to introduce it in stages, and that's what we've seen. One of the main ways that cashless society is planned to be introduced is through this technological takeover of human society, where automation and robots take jobs previously done by humans, and I talk about that in episode 14. This is all part of creating the Hunger Games Society I talk about in episode 4. The idea is jobs previously done by humans will be taken over by robots and automation and humans will be left to do other jobs. People think that this robot and automation takeover of jobs is good because it means when the robots and automation have taken over much more that humans will be free to enjoy their life and pursue hobbies. But there's a question. Who pays the bills then? People who say this think it's being done for human benefit, but society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And thus, it's not about human benefit, it's about human control. 
and the Hunger Games connection is that, as I've said before, the agenda is to break countries up into regions, sectors to use Hunger Games talk, to which the unions like the European Union will dictate to, which themselves will be dictated to by an elected bureaucratic world government, essentially the same structure as the European Union, but globally, and far more draconian even than that, the elite in the capital in the Hunger Games the region or sector you live in will decide what job you do as each sector will be assigned a different specialization and if you don't do what the corporation you're working for tells you to do the job you're assigned then you don't get access to your electronic money in a cashless society so you can't get into one of these cashless cashierless stores like these amazon stores and pay with your electronic money because you don't have access to money and you've not been paid anyway and you can't use cash because there is no cash anymore giant corporations like amazon their main concern, whatever they might say, is the agenda. It's not the customers. We see this with Monsanto, who I talk about in episode 20, who have merged with Bayer, another giant corporation. And this is another goal of the elite's agenda, to have super corporations running everything. The ministries in Orwell's 1984. Monsanto are behind genetic modification of food and terminator seeds, which instead of the seeds from one season providing the seeds for the next, as was the case, and still is in many cases, Terminator seeds only work for one season, so you have to keep buying them. And this is why they plan to stop people growing food themselves, which is the obvious way to get around the genetically modified, chemically infested and sprayed food of the corporations. In the world of the elite's agenda, that's all food will be. The obvious way to get around that is to grow your own food, and Terminator seeds are all part of stopping that, and also making it more and more difficult for farmers and landowners to continue growing food, because they want to get them off the land and into the smart cities where can't really grow food and the idea is that all food will be produced by the corporations and what passes for food in that situation. Monsanto's concern like Coca-Cola, like Facebook, like Google, like Google and YouTube, like all these giant corporations that serve the elite's agenda, it's not their customers, it's the elite's agenda because that's what they are a vehicle to introduce into society because society is agenda driven, not people driven. final subject this week is Amazon again. Amazon Alexa and smart homes. This is in the Daily Mail. Amazon aims to make Alexa Assistant a bigger part of users' lives. From the kitchen to the car, Amazon on Thursday sought to make its Alexa digital assistant and online services a bigger part of people's lives with an array of new products and partnerships. Updates to the internet giant's Alexa-infused Echo smart speakers will allow them to tend to microwave cooking and even have hunches regarding what users may want or have forgotten. When Alexa is told corn on the cob, a digital echo speaker starts an Amazon Basics microwave oven in a faux home demonstration room, setting the preferred time and voicing what it is doing. But when asked to add 30 seconds, Alexa pauses and then starts to play songs by the band 30 seconds to Mars. Such misunderstandings are routine enough with smart speakers that they have become fodder for humour and even cropped up while Amazon Devices and Services Senior Vice President David Limp showed off new devices in a nearby building a short time earlier. Alexa has gotten smarter, more conversational and even intuitive during the past year as Amazon teams work hard on getting a digital assistant to better understand people according to Limp. Alexa is even developing a personality, complete with a favourite pet or beer. It has also learned to understand whispers, responding in equally hushed tones in a feature to be rolled out in the coming weeks. Amazon teased a coming feature called Alexa Hunches that is designed to infuse the digital assistant with intuition. For example, when a user bids Alexa a good night, it might respond by mentioning they forgot to lock a door. 
Alexa uses artificial intelligence to identify patterns in the lives of users, factoring in weather, time of year and more. To know what is happening with other smart devices in a home, the Echo speaker needs to be connected to them. It's planned to be. The article goes on. Amazon recently passed the 20,000 mark for smart home devices made by the Seattle-based company or partners. We are really at a tipping point for the smart home, Limp said while unveiling an array of new devices. An overhauled Echo Dot smart speaker boasts much improved sound and design while keeping the $50 price tag of the original. Amazon added Echo equivalents of stereo components for home sound systems, along with improvements to its online music service. Limp unveiled a frustration-free setup platform intended to grow into a framework that any smart device maker can use to make getting gadgets to talk to Alexa as easy as plugging them into outlets. That is not going to happen overnight, Limp said. As we imagine a future that is thousands of these devices in your home, this is going to become absolutely essential. Well, there's real essentials like food and water and shelter, which don't become essential, they are. And then there's Amazon Echo, which is about as far from essential as you can get, especially where you'd consider where it's designed to end. If something will, the article goes on. And of course there was the $60 microwave, which Limp contended was a strong test because of how much microwaves interfere with wireless connectivity used by devices to communicate. Amazon is doubling down on its strategy of integrating Alexa far and wide into appliances, consumer electronics and cars, CCS, Insight Research Vice President Jeff Blaber said at the event, A freshly announced Alexa Guard service synchronizes with Echo speakers in the home and motion detectors from Amazon-owned smart doorbell maker Ring. When Echo speakers are set to guard mode, they listen for breaking glass or the sound of alarms from smoke or carbon dioxide detectors and send alerts to smartphones or even security companies. Ring cameras can also be connected to Echo devices with screens letting people see you as come calling demonstrations showed. A new Echo Show device boasted twice the screen display area as its predecessor and Fire TV recast that acts as a digital recorder for traditional television broadcasts. Not satisfied with being built into new cars, Alexa will be able to work in older models with an Echo Auto device that can be affixed to dashboards and reach the internet through smartphones. Amazon launched today what I believe is the industry's largest assortment of home automation products and added meaningful improvements to its services, said analyst Patrick Moorhead and more insights and strategy. Amazon has been moving fast in the race against digital assistants fielded by powerhouse rivals, Google and Apple to become the preferred way people interact by voice with artificial intelligence. Amazon's announcements are sharp reminders to Apple and Google that Alexa has a significant lead that it is working meticulously to maximize play percent. Well, this is another step towards creating the Internet of Things, as former CIA director David Petraeus called it once, where everything in your smart home is connected to the Internet and part of the smart grid, also called the cloud. Petraeus said, and this is from the CIA website, public website, the Internet of Things, devices of all types, 50 to 100 billion of which will be connected to the Internet by 2020. As you know, whereas machines in the 19th century learned to do, and those in the 20th century learned to think at a rudimentary level, in the 21st century they are learning to perceive, to actually sense and respond. Key applications developed by our InQtel investment companies are focused on technologies that are driving the Internet of Things. InQtel is an organisation that is connected to Silicon Valley. The quote goes on. Key applications developed by our InQtel investment companies are focused on technologies that are driving the Internet of Things. These include item identification or devices engaged in tagging, sensors 
and wireless sensor networks, devices that indeed sense and respond, embedded systems, those that think and evaluate, and finally nanotechnology, allowing these devices to be small enough to function virtually anywhere. Items of interest will be located, identified, monitored and remotely controlled through technologies such as radio frequency identification, sensor networks, tiny embedded servers and energy harvesters all connected to the next generation internet using abundant, low cost and high power computing, the latter now going to cloud computing. And that quote says so much about where we're going technologically. The internet of things will allow the authorities to know everything about your home. And this connects with the previous article, because if you don't keep authority happy, then you will not only not get access to money, but your heating, electricity and water can be turned off. If you want to control human society, you have to control that which is fundamental to human life. And you've also got to run down public services to justify privatisation in the public mind. This is why the NHS here in Britain is in the state it's in. This is why policing here in Britain is in the state it's in to get people to agree to privatisation on the pretext of a more efficient service when actually it's about control because once it's privatised you can then dictate who has access to it in other words anyone who is not a problem for you you being authority the authorities will know with the internet things every time you open your fridge how many items are in there when you take anything out or put anything in the fridge and the idea is that with the internet of things everything in your home is connected to the internet and if you don't keep authority happy, then your fridge can be turned off remotely. The same with your heating and electricity and gas. Your water supply can be stopped. It's about control. Also planned to be part of the smart grid or cloud is the human mind under the transhuman agenda through the nanotechnology talked about by people like David Petraeus in that quote I just read and Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, Ray Kurzweil, in ways that I describe in episode 11. This is where artificial intelligence comes in, again in the way that I talk about in episode 11. People think the AI takeover is about convenience, but it's about control and convenience does not equal freedom. The idea is to persuade people that the next stage of convenience is random, spontaneous, and so people don't see where it's all leading and it's about human control, not in every case, but certainly the major steps of convenience technologically. Smart homes will also massively contribute to the radiation agenda for various reasons, one of which is that this smart grid relies on electromagnetic radiation to operate. Low frequency, extremely low frequency radiation, electromagnetic field radiation to function, including in the end the abomination to human health called 5G, which I've talked about in episode 12 and in the description of the episode on Podomatic, the host website for the podcast. I include a link to a document where scientists and doctors warn of the serious health effects of 5G. Smart homes are what are called human settlement zones in Agenda 21 language at the United Nations, which are tiny, narrow flats basically, ridiculously small living space, will be in the smart cities in the sectors of the Hunger Games Society I mentioned earlier. Those not cold through the depopulation agenda I've mentioned many times before are playing out not least through technological radiation will be living in the smart cities in the hunger game society subject to the totalitarian rule and perception manipulation of the smart cities so this is the society we're heading towards and we either do what most people have done up to this point to look at what's going on and make a difference which is nothing 
or people look at what's going on and make a difference because at the core of this is a tiny few who know what's really going on and there's seven and a half billion being manipulated so there is a solution to the problem we just need to get engaged and come together irrespective of all the lines of division in society and use the numbers we have to peacefully cease cooperating with authority because if we do the elite's agenda for control and suppression is at an end but only if we do so that's it for this week that's the news that's the context and connections that's pay-per-view more to come next week until then goodbye <laughs>